Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. From genetically modified mosquitoes to glucose-sensing contact lenses to a Star Trek-like tricorder, the Google health company Verily has made some big bets in medicine. But when will they pay off? Stats' Aaron Brodwin joins us to discuss. Next, have you tried to find a COVID-19 rapid test lately? It is not easy. We talk about the market for these tests with healthcare investor, MD, and dad, Bijan Salahizadeh. Of course, we'll start with a look at the week in biotech. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash podcast. So starting off by ticking the box of discussing Adjuhelm on this podcast, with all of the months of controversy, consternation, and the launching of investigations as to how this drug got approved, I think a lot of us were curious about, well, is anybody going to be prescribing and administering this deeply controversial treatment for Alzheimer's disease manufactured by Biogen? Thursday morning, Biogen was uh, interviewed, or Biogen CEO Michelle Venatos rather appeared at the Morgan Stanley Healthcare Conference to give us an update on the commercial uptake. And Adam, what was the tone of that? Yeah, you know, from prior comments that Biogen has made, I mean, we know that the launch is has been slow. And I think what was interesting today was the company probably provided more details to the public, to us, about the extent of the slowness of the Adjuhelm launch and, you know, how it's really going at not as well as the company had hoped, not as well as they anticipated, and certainly not as well as, you know, uh, investors had hoped it would be. Yeah. So Michel Venazos, I mean, had, had a, he blamed three main issues um, in reverse order. They were that, you know, nobody really knows what the reimbursement is going to be for this drug as Medicare considers it. There's uh, maybe insufficient infrastructure for administering an infused therapy as Adjuhelm is. And then there is, as he said, misinformation about the data Biogen has generated to support this approval. And that's where, I mean, that's been a consistent tone. Biogen had an open letter, uh, I think a couple months ago, where the company seems to really feel like they are being misunderstood, if not are the victims of a misinformation campaign uh, on this treatment for Alzheimer's disease, which as anyone who tuned into this world, listens to this podcast, maybe at this point just lives in the United States, knows there are deep-seated concerns about whether this drug actually works, held by people who are not partisans in some kind of struggle or don't have an axe to grind against Biogen necessarily, but rather just happen to be practicing neurologists and PhDs. Yeah, my eyes sort of rolled when he said misinformation, and I was waiting for him to blame short sellers. Or us. I think we were blamed at one point, right? Or, or, or the media. Yeah, exactly. It's always the media's fault. 
So pivoting to a very famous biotech company with uh, better recent fortunes than Biogen, Meg, you spent the morning listening to Moderna's R&D presentation. What did you learn from the presentation? Well, you know, a lot of the the presentation from Moderna uh, has been trying to show the breadth of what mRNA can do. I mean, this is a company that now has a market valuation of $180 billion, and their only commercialized product is their COVID-19 vaccine. And so it seems like an attempt, as it often is with Moderna, I mean, to show that they are more than the COVID-19 vaccine. So in the vaccine space, I think one thing that's been garnering a lot of attention this morning is that Moderna has said they think they'll be first to market with a combo shot for COVID, flu, and RSV. Uh, So putting all of those together in one shot, and I think protecting against four strains of the flu, as all the seasonal vaccines do, well, some do three, but most do four, um, along with the RSV and the COVID uh, antigens as well. Um, We don't know exactly when that will come, and they're essentially testing each individually now. And we anticipate, they said, they expect to get the first seasonal flu data very soon. So that's going to be just so interesting because it'll really give us the first peek of how well this could potentially apply in a different area, this mRNA technology. And it's totally fascinating to me because one of their arguments for why they could be better is that mRNA can be developed so fast that they could better tailor the flu vaccine to the circulating strains. But that will require totally different communication with the WHO, which recommends which strains to put in the flu vaccines, because essentially the WHO accommodates the growing in egg processes and the one, you know, protein-based vaccine that's already out there, uh, which are much slower. And so now this would require sort of checking in closer to when flu season would be with Moderna to tell them, okay, well, we actually need to change the strain. So it's going to be really, really fascinating, I think, to watch that development process. Hey, Meg, I didn't listen to that presentation, but Was it all vaccines or did they talk about therapeutics at all? No, they also talked about therapeutics. Um, That's a big part of uh, the rest of the day. And we're recording this Thursday morning. They're still talking about a lot of their therapeutics uh, as well. I'm currently looking at it and they're talking about VEGFA and having the potential to improve cardiovascular outcomes. So, I mean, this is a a whole overview of all of their R&D and it looks like they're partnered here with AstraZeneca. Um, So I'm really looking forward to getting to the Q&A part um, (laughs) at the end of the day and just hearing what people are most interested in from what they've uh, presented. And then let's pivot to uh, another favorite topic of ours, Theranos. Uh, Damien, uh, you've been sort of paying uh, close attention to the the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. It got, it got underway this week. Yeah, that's right. So we got opening statements uh, on Wednesday. And they went, I think, about as, as we expected. The prosecutors laid out their very cut and dry case against Elizabeth Holmes, which you know, obviously it rests upon the notion that what Theranos said it would do, what she said it could do, uh, it could not. And thus those things were untrue. But what's key is that they have to establish that when she said the untrue things, she did so with the intent to defraud investors and patients. And so that kind of framed the prosecutor's two hour opening statement, which was like a sort of a buffet of of potential defenses against this concept of intent, reasons why she couldn't have formulated uh, intent. So there was a large focus on, you know, she really believed in the technology. She still believes in the technology. 
which is kind of incredible, um, that she tried her best. As, as the as her attorney, you know, pointed out reasonably, it's not a crime to fail in business. People do it all the time. It's only a crime if you intend, etc. So his argument was that she couldn't have intended because she really, really was trying to be the best CEO of Theranos that she could be. Um, and then they kind of glanced at but didn't really explore these notions that um, she wasn't really mentally capable of forming intent because of her relationship with her co-defendant um, and ex-boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, who was not there to defend himself, won't be there to defend himself. So it was sort of, I guess, like an appetizer for what is probably going to be a long and oftentimes boring trial. One thing that the defense really did key in on was just how complicated uh, this sort of blood testing is and can be. So there were all sorts of mentions of cytometry and immunoassays and all this stuff that it kind of seemed like there could be a tactic at play to sort of bombard the jury with the complexity of this stuff in order to advance the notion of like, look, this is really hard and they failed and anybody might fail. And, and the woman before you who the government is painting as this great fraud was just someone who bit off more than she could chew with this stuff that, hey, none of us really understand. So I, that'll be an interesting kind of thread to watch as the trial unfolds. Did, did you guys see the photo of the, the three Elizabeth Holmes fans with blonde hair dressed all in black waiting in line to get into the courthouse? Oh my gosh, I am so curious. I need so much more information about these people. <laughs> I know, the, the, the photo was from, from was them from the back. So we couldn't actually see what they look like. From there the were front. no Martin Shkreli impersonators at his trial at least as far as I noticed. If we went to TikTok, there's probably a whole like community of Elizabeth Home fans dressed all in black. Before we wrap up our Chatty Cathy segment, as we call it uh, offline, and now you all know that we call it this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a shout out to LifeSciVT, um, who on Twitter asked us to talk about Helen Branswell's really fascinating tweet about flu and why we haven't seen... Um, you know, a rise in in flu, but we have started to see a comeback in other respiratory illnesses or influenza-like illnesses. Um, this is a topic she asked us to talk about it this week, and um, we didn't get to do it this week, but it's something I'm really fascinated by too. So um, as long as Damien and Adam agree, we promise to come back to it. Definitely. Oh, it was, I was meant to verbally agree. <laughs> yes, I also agree. Sorry. Pivoting uh, maybe briefly, Adam, there was that thing that people in biotech dream of so often happened this week, which is where a major pharmaceutical company sweeps in and buys an up and down formerly troubled biotech company at a large premium. What happened? Yeah, that, that thing is called M&A, Damien. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had, we had, we had a, kind of a, a decent deal, not, not, not too big, but you know, Sanofi bought Cadman Pharmaceuticals for $1.9 billion. Um, what's probably noteworthy here, Cadman is a company that was founded and run by the Waxel brothers. Um, Sam Waxel founded the company. Uh, it was eventually taken over and run by his brother Harlan. And I probably don't need to mention more about the history of the Waxel brothers uh, for people who listen to this podcast. But yes, this was you know this was kind of a good news story. It was a company that kind of founded under a cloud, had run into a lot of trouble. They have a drug for graft versus host disease that actually just secured approval back in July. Uh, and and now they've been acquired. So um, we'll wait to see what uh, the Waxel brothers do next in biotech. Verily is growing up. The company, launched by Google in 2015, has long functioned more like an academic medical center than a tech company. 
But after six years of some promising research, a few missed deadlines, and a little organizational strife, Verily is bearing down to produce actual products that actual people will actually use. Stats Aaron Broadwin and Casey Ross reported an inside look at Verily's evolution this week, and Aaron joins us now to talk about it. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Aaron, for starters, what is Verily? You know, is it is it a tech company? Is it a private research institution or a Silicon Valley vanity project? That is a great question, Adam. It started as a moonshot project known as Google X, wherein it got essentially an unlimited budget and access to all of Alphabet's, Alphabet's resources to say, hey, you know, here are some of the world's biggest science problems. Let's essentially throw the kitchen sink at them. And its first study was Baseline, which it launched with the aim of, I think it said at the time, and this was back in 2014, creating a full picture of a healthy human. And so their aim was to collect reams and reams of genetic and molecular data. Baseline is still ongoing. And it's also become sort of an amorphous word for a bunch of different initiatives at Verily, from its COVID testing initiative. I don't know if you recall, but President Trump uh, infamously made this Rose Garden speech where he talked about Google's big testing initiative that was actually Verily to uh, a clinical trials platform for study sponsors and, and advocates. And um, to bring it back to this story, I mean, the reason we wrote it is because is because Verily is facing a pressure test right now to, to commercialize, to prove that it can pull from its roots as a moonshot, pull from its laundry list of science projects, pull from its talent and the $2.5 billion it's raised and turn out what is really a short list of market-ready, transformative medical products. So as you wrote in the story, it's, it's been kind of a long journey to this new focus on, on creating products that, that would have customers. What's coming in the near term? Like, like how, how will this actually play out? And how will we know uh, whether they're succeeding in this kind of growing up initiative? So right before this big push to commercialize, the company was, as I said, essentially moonshotting. Is that, is that a verb? Let's make it a verb. It is one now. <laughs> it was publishing papers. It was trying a bunch of ambitious things. Um, it was trying to eradicate mosquitoes with this project called Debug. It was trying to make an easy-to-use miniature continuous glucose monitor for people with diabetes. And so near term, what the company is really focused on, when we talk with their executives, they basically said they're looking at three core products. They're looking at Onduo, which is their initiative for people with diabetes. It's like a digital platform. If you've so just, you know, giving them tips on what to what meals to eat, when to exercise, um, connects them with coaches and clinicians. That's essentially what Verily's Onduo does. It's its second core product is this initiative called Terra, which is just a cloud-based research platform for academic researchers. And then um, it's third, the the third prong of that of that kind of stool that they're looking at is baseline, which, as I mentioned, has since turned into this kind of um, larger umbrella term for a bunch of different initiatives that it's doing. But the the core one here is its clinical trials platform. So it's basically a platform that it's going to advertise to study sponsors and advocates and say, you know, here's here's a list of rough and ready tools that you can apply to your clinical trial. Um, it's a way of trying to uh, allow more clinical trials to happen in a virtualized kind of setting. One example of this that is not a clinical trial, but is a study, is the, you know, you may recall the, the Apple Watch study. It was all virtual. Um, basically, everybody did everything via telehealth. And Baseline is aiming to do more trials, more studies like that in a clinical trial setting. So higher caliber, a lot harder to do. No one's proved it can be done yet, 
but Baseline wants to do it. So why is now this sort of moment of truth for Verily when all of this pressure to deliver, you know, on the billions of dollars of investment that's gone into it is suddenly coming to a head? Basically, what we're seeing is there's there's a push right now to commercialize because they've had six years, they've had their time as a moonshot, they've had their time taking a spaghetti at the wall approach, and this is the moment to shine, essentially. They've, they've hired all this top talent. They've hired people like Amy Abernethy, who was at the FDA and, you know, really started Flatiron and really made Flatiron into the company that it is today. They've hired Stephen Gillett, who was formerly at Starbucks. Um, and is now their CFO. They really created a brand new C-suite here. So it is time to, you know, put rubber to road and show that that these all of these spaghetti at the wall initiatives can be culled essentially into a list of of market ready products. Hey, Aaron, how important is it, or maybe not at all, for Verily to develop a successful tech hardware or device type product versus something that's kind of software or AI. I mean, I know one of their one of their early initiatives was the tricorder, um, some of the kind of health detection device. And I'm a Star Trek fan, so I thought that was kind of cool. And it never it never materialized. But do they need something like that? Do they need some kind of like G Wiz tech device to to kind of be successful? I would say yes, definitively yes. Fellow Trekkie over here also watched the development of that tricorder. Unfortunately, that product has been shut down along with its very ambitious glucose-detecting contact lens. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I do remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of its a lot of its um, you know hardware initiatives have floundered, unfortunately. But I would say that it's very very critical. Perhaps for that very reason that they that they show that they can create a hardware device that is not only a transformative medical tool but can drive profit and one example of a device that they've long been working on is high profile and would be really useful uh, to plug and play with their on duo digital diabetes solution is the miniature continuous glucose monitor that've been that they've been working on with Dexcom their CGM would essentially be a miniature, very easy to use one um, in a presentation at JP Morgan last year. Uh, Andy Conrad, Verily CEO, said that it would be ready by the end of the year. It's not here yet. We're still waiting. But he also said it might have a pedometer in there. It might have some other really cool tech. So yeah, I think we're all watching and waiting to see them bring that product to the market. But as I said, it is not here yet. Well, kind of on that topic, like going back to around 2016, when it, at least externally, it seemed like Verily was was kind of sputtering and, and maybe there was a, a lot going on in there lacking some direction. There was this narrative that tech people simply didn't understand the complexity of biology and were kind of doomed in this space. And I wondered, like in that context, what's at stake with Verily's success? Like are other people in health tech looking at the company as a sort of bellwether for, for the whole sector and, and it being taken more seriously? There are a lot of questions being asked right now, and there always kind of have been, about whether or not tech is kind of too arrogant to iterate on some of the hardest problems facing biology. And I think that that narrative is useful insofar as it can answer more specific questions. And right now, that's kind of, it's kind of an easy thing to say. It's a, it's a phrase that a lot of people throw at this industry. 
Yes, people are watching the development of this company, which, as I said before, has $2.5 billion um, as a sort of bellwether for, for the space. But um, but we have seen some change come from, from the intersection of tech and healthcare. And I think in the future, I mean, I was just reading this um, story by Lisa Suenen, um over at Manat the other day that was basically like, should we retire the term digital health and just call it health? And I think that's so apropos um, because healthcare is quickly just becoming an industry where it is at its essence both a product of technology and a product of, of, of you know, medical and biological innovations. One of the things I thought was um, provided a lot of insight in your story was you and Casey talked with former employees who um, basically talked about feeling like they really couldn't focus on completing um, things that they were working on. And it, it painted this picture of a company with a lot of irons in the fire or a lot of irons in different fires, whatever way you want to take that uh, metaphor. Um do you think there is hope or an expectation that that's going to change with some of these new hires that you wrote about, like Amy Abernathy from the FDA? And I just mentioned her because I know her. Part and parcel of this big push to commercialize is also streamlining. So it's taking this really wide-ranging list of moonshots, of science projects, of ambitious endeavors like the tricorder, for example, and turning them into, you know, work really workable solutions. And I, I do, yeah, I, I, I talked to a handful of people, many of whom mentioned this problem with just getting too overwhelmed with projects to really focus on any. And I think, you know, these days, any of us can relate to that. I have currently about 12 tabs open on my desktop and focusing on one of them at a time is very, very difficult. So these, these, these uh, top talent folks that you were talking about, Amy Abernethy, Stephen Gillett, a few others, were brought on to try and streamline because that hasn't really happened at Verily in the past. There have been other efforts um, right before uh, this whole Trump ordeal and the and the COVID testing initiative. I was hearing that there uh, was a big push inside the company to try and just streamline its management to say, to give people a clear list of priorities and tasks. And one of the hardest things that I was hearing that they were struggling with was just saying no to projects, was just killing projects when they clearly weren't going anywhere. And so that's what I'm going to be watching to see um, if they can do. But um, yeah, I mean, it's high stakes. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Inspiration for podcasting topics comes from many places, including multi-tweet rants on Twitter. I guess, where else would you find a multi-tweet rant? One such thread posted Wednesday caught our eye. It was from healthcare investor Bijan Salahizadeh, who logged onto Twitter to voice his frustration with the current state of rapid COVID testing here in the U.S. And Bijan got right to the point with the first tweet in his thread, writing, quote, The availability, pricing, and acceptance of home rapid antigen tests sucks in the U.S. We all know that, but why is this? And by rapid antigen tests, he's referring to the simple test kits that anyone can buy and use to determine if they've been infected with SARS-CoV-2. These tests deliver results in about 15 minutes. But as the U.S. struggles with the Delta wave of COVID cases while trying to return kids to school and adults to work, rapid COVID testing seems to be forgotten or neglected part of the solution. So Bijan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Meg. So maybe explain to us from your perspective, what is going on with rapid COVID testing here in the U.S. or maybe what's not happening? Well, certainly what's not happening is there's just not enough availability, whether it's online, whether it's in actual stores. I know many, many people like myself who go to CVS or Walgreens and can't find them. 
And it's a real challenge as school gets started right now when this is the time when we all thought these tests would be available. And I think it's, you know, probably many reasons why this is. One is we only have two or three approved vendors in the US for these rapid antigen tests versus European countries that have, in some cases, dozens of approved vendors by their health regulators. So that's a real head scratcher from my perspective and probably one of the root causes as to the lack of availability. You know, Bijan, I had this sort of same experience uh, a couple weeks ago. I had come back from a trip and I started feeling a little bad. And so I thought, oh, my God, maybe I have COVID. And I, you know, I, I went to get a rapid test and I had to go to like four CVSs to find, uh, I guess I found the Abbott test. And, you know, it was expensive. It was like 20, 30 bucks for two tests, you know, and then I, I've seen on Twitter and, I, and I've heard in Europe, you know, by contrast, like, you know, these tests are everywhere, right? They're like ubiquitous. Uh, I know there was somebody who tweeted a photo of a of an, a supermarket in Amsterdam where there was this big bin of the same kind of rapid COVID tests. They were like, you know, the equivalent of like four or five US dollars. It's shocking. And I've seen those photos from Germany and, and other countries in Europe. And um, I think the governments there might be subsidizing it. And I think that's actually what we need. You know, I went back and looked up the American Rescue Plan, we had $48 billion that U.S. taxpayer allocated towards improving testing. Now, I don't know how that's been dispersed, but I can tell you, speaking from my small sample set of schools here in the D.C. area where I live, those schools have no access to rapid antigen testing. Forget subsidized. There's just no access. And certainly the prices we're paying, if we can find them online or in stores, is five to 10x what people in other countries are paying. So something about the supply chain, the regulatory process to approve these under EUA, and the availability to us as consumers is utterly broken. Well, and you know, I, I kind of share this frustration just having had to search for tests, and I have wondered like, at whom should I be directing my ire? Is it a matter of the FDA not uh, really approving uh, as many vendors as, as we've seen in other countries? Is it a matter of Operation Warp Speed disproportionately investing in things we needed for the pandemic, which is to say vaccines and perhaps less so diagnostics? Is it the manufacturers themselves? I, where do you direct your ire, I guess? I, look, I think like with all things in U.S. healthcare, it's complicated. And and from my perspective, Damien, it, it's, a, it's a bit of all of those but also the fact that we are relying on for-profit companies, those who create these tests, the Abbots of the world, the Quidels of the world, to develop and launch these tests, to ramp up their manufacturing facilities to do that, all at risk. And we saw, based on the New York Times reporting from a few weeks ago, that Abbott decided to entirely shut down its plant in Maine back in the middle of the summer when they thought, you know, COVID was done with and the lack, the need for these tests was, these rapid antigen tests was going to be gone. And in fact, that was probably the exact worst time to make that decision from a public health perspective. And they said they were relying on what CDC had told them, which is that vaccinated people shouldn't be testing. So it's multi-pronged. I think it's guidance from the CDC has been slow around how and when to test. And I think the manufacturers are looking at their EPS and their guidance and all the things, you know, the the uh, business reporters in healthcare cover. And they're wondering, why should I keep this line running when I don't know what the demand for this product is going to be even a quarter out from now, which screams for federal help um, to, to for these manufacturers and price subsidies for the consumer. That's such a good point. I mean, as a healthcare investor, how do you think about Abbott's decision making there. I mean, you mentioned that they were kind of taking their cue from the CDC and expecting that demand for testing was going to go way down. But at the same time, I mean, did this wave come out of nowhere for absolutely everybody? Should the 
company have had some sort of longer term thinking and planning. I mean, yes, perhaps this should be subsidized by the government. But on the flip side of that, Abbott has made, what, billions of dollars from uh, the COVID tests that it has made and provided. So it's a huge business for them. I mean, should investors be frustrated that Abbott made that decision? I think, look, from an investor perspective, if if I was a shareholder of Abbott and I'm not, they probably made the exact right decision with the incentive structures that we have set up for investors and companies. Um, But from a public health perspective, it's a very different perspective. I think it was the absolutely wrong decision. Look, we didn't ask our vaccine makers to go at risk. We gave them guaranteed take contracts at guaranteed prices. So if those vaccines were successful through the trials, which, by the way, were also subsidized by the U.S. government entirely, those vaccine clinical trials were were entirely paid for at very high prices per patient enrolled. And then the vaccines were bought, pre-bought at very, you know, at, at prices that the manufacturers were able to make a margin. They That's why they entered the market as they did. And we don't have that in diagnostic testing. And I can't figure out why we don't have that. So, Bishan, you know, we're talking here about the availability of tests, the manufacturing, the pricing. But what about the the policy of testing? It seems like Testing is something that's really not talked about that much from a policy perspective. I mean, we talk a lot about vaccines and boosters and maybe therapeutics, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about testing. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's it's always, to me, seemed like, and look, this I've been investing in the diagnostics ecosystem for 20 years, um, and, and I always think of it as a, sort of the, uh, the second-class citizen of healthcare investing. No one really cares about testing and diagnostics compared to biotech therapeutics, which are the sexier thing we all want to think about, cures, right, so to speak. But diagnostic testing is absolutely critical, and it is in COVID, and we've had the same you know, type of thinking, I think, from our from our public health authorities, state and federal, it's just been ignored. Even just things as simple, Adam, as test to stay, which some states in New England are doing, which is you don't need to quarantine a whole classroom if there's one exposed child. The, uh, some of the more progressive systems, health uh, school systems in the Northeast are saying we can use these rapid antigen tests, if we can get our hands on them, and test the classroom every day to ensure that we can keep kids in school. So to me, the policy becomes really real when it comes down to the brass tacks of can we keep kids in the classroom this fall and not have them have to go home when the inevitable exposure events will happen, where there'll be one kid who's infected or has a family member or a small child in their household who's sick. What are we going to do in those situations? And that's what rapid antigen testing is perfect for. And it seems like just complete silence coming from CDC around how to handle situations like this. And then a lot of other states are taking their cues off of that silence and just saying, you know, I don't know, we'll just quarantine for 10 days like we did last year. So a common thing that that I feel like we're all discussing is like, what are the societal lessons of COVID-19 applying to, you know, every aspect of, you know, our global society? And I was curious with respect to this, now obviously this is a little bit uh, premature because we still have this humongous problem with testing, but what do you think we can learn kind of post-pandemic about how we think about the development of and the distribution of diagnostics at large? Um, or what do you hope people will have learned from this experience as we move forward? Yeah, I think if we were to sit down and write the after action report in a few years when hopefully the these waves of COVID are behind us, I think, you know, one of the, one of the big lessons to be learned is that the guidances that um, public health authorities put out, you know, just just were it felt like they were chasing their tail each time. And and diagnostics is the perfect example of that, Damien, in, in the sense that we have public health authorities here in the U.S. that are very science driven. I'd say we have a CDC that is a very academic CDC and not a real world CDC. And that really just when you look at how they've handled 
all the questions about testing, whether it's PCR testing, rapid antigen testing, point of care testing, I think the guidances around that have been slow. And I think if you list, look at you know some, some peer venture capitalists of mine, like Bill Gurley, who's a tech investor, but a really smart guy, he also points out the fact that they have 60 plus approved vendors for rapid antigen OTC testing in Germany, for instance, um, versus our three or four. And so why is that from a regulatory and FDA perspective that we have run it so much tighter under an EUA sort of setup? You know, it seems like the bar is high. We need actual clinical studies run for our EUAs for diagnostic tests here versus I think what other countries are doing, which is more sort of basic sort of equivalence type studies for their rapid antigens. So there's a whole slew of things we're going to look back at. I, the question I have though, Damien, is are we actually going to take the time to look back at these things or are we just going to plow forward and, um, and just, you know, unfortunately wait for the next pandemic to come? That is the thought that terrifies me out of all of this. I have to note your wording that Bill Gurley is a tech investor, but a really smart guy. <laughs> um, you know, as we're talking about all of this, I should note, you know, we're recording this Thursday morning ahead of the release of the podcast Thursday afternoon. And my colleague at NBC News, Heidi Presbola, just tweeted some reporting that uh, in President Biden's speech uh, Thursday night on COVID efforts, it's apparently going to include a call for all schools to set up regular testing. But I think the problem is going to be, as you just pointed out, Bijan, in D.C., how do they get access to these tests? Yes, there was $10 billion allocated to schools testing in the American Rescue Plan, but we did some reporting on this a couple weeks ago. And schools have all different ways of thinking about this. And yes, there's CDC guidance. But as you said, how do they get access to these rapid tests? How much optimism do you have that, like, in, in your school system that's going to make a difference? Look, I, I have optimism that if we put our shoulder into it, we can do it, but I have pessimism that it's gonna impact the fall. So even if the federal government puts his shoulder into it, we have had a last mile appropriation problem. Lots of money has been given towards things like testing, and yet it hasn't actually been dispersed down to the states and school boards and counties. So it's a, it's multi-pronged, and I, I'm, a, I'm glad if the president announces something that's sweeping around testing, that's better than not, and I've been needling people in the White House with my tweets over the last few weeks, where is your plan on testing? But I'm very pessimistic that that's going to impact this fall, where cases are still really high in big swaths of the country, and that's when we need it now. And Bishan, you have uh, school-aged children. I was wondering if you, if you wouldn't mind like sharing, what are you doing with your family with regards to testing? Yeah, so we have a COVID protocol in our house. We, there's four of us in the household, including myself. We're all fully vaccinated, so I have two teenagers. And, you know, my number one goal has been normalcy this fall. Stay in school, be able to socialize with your friends outside. Um, and part of that plan for us is to test ourselves. So um, everybody in the family gets tested at breakfast, Tuesday morning and Friday morning, as long as school is in session. So twice a week, rapid antigen testing at the breakfast counter. And they also do it if they go see their friends. And I, I will give rapid antigen tests to all their friends. So everyone tests before they go have a, an outside meal at a restaurant. So we're really trying to run that protocol safe with the goal being we don't want to be the house that extends the chain of transmission. And a secondary goal, Adam, of avoiding long COVID, where we still don't know that long COVID in fully vaccinated people, what the consequences are, whether it exists or not, how severe it is. There's a lot to learn there. But for now, I sort of practice universal precaution and we've got a we've got a pretty oriented house to running the tests themselves, which is which is great. And that's a pretty expensive family plan. It is. And we're fortunate to be able to afford it if we can find those tests. And I've right. how do you get them? Do you order them in giant bulk amounts from like Walmart or something? I don't because I don't like the idea of hoarding these tests. So I'm ordering like five five once a week. And but it's gotten really hard, Meg. Like, you know, CVS and Walgreens are entirely sold out. 
there's eBay sellers, but they're charging a 2X markup now. And and Walmart occasionally has some supply. So I found some supply last night. So I ordered ahead for two weeks from now. So I ordered two weeks in advance, basically, what we need for the week. But at some point, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to order them because I think the supply is becoming more and more scarce, I fear. Well, Bajan, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, guys. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you've been able to find a rapid COVID test. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.